Well, let's turn our hearts and seek our God together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to lay our praises before you at the first of this week to give the beginning to you, to give our best. We pray that you would stir us with the realities that we find in Scripture. Forgive us when our thoughts and hearts have become clouded and dull and unresponsive. There are so many things that call for our attention, and many of them are things that you've entrusted to us, responsibilities that we should consider. But now, as we gather, for a short while, we lay them aside, and that the tyranny of the urgent could be put away, and the timeless God met face-to-face in the Scriptures, We pray that you would open our eyes to behold you as you really are, to see how you have designed the Christian life, the church, how love looks when it's expressed to the world, to the believer next to us. We pray that who you are would not just fill our hearts with a real gladness and enduring hope, so that we could labor, even to the point of exhaustion, without complaint. But God, we pray that it would also, your character would be seen through us, reflected. Show us who you are, so that our lives would then show others. May your character and your actions be clearly viewed in ours. We think of the memory verses that we've been looking at recently and the fact that you are our rock, our unshifting rock, and you are right. You are just, and you love what is right and just and hate what is wrong. God, if you weren't like this, what hope would any person have? But you are. And we saw that demonstrated at the cross in a way that shocks us that you did crucify your son and it was your pleasure to put him to grief, to crush him under the weight of our sins because you are just. And now, by your great work, you can justify those who are guilty. So we come and we pray that you would work in such a way that we would live for him who died and was raised again, and rules at your right hand now for us. Let the love of Christ constrain and compel us. We pray for those who, in our little fellowship, are very sick or isolated. We pray for those in our families who are still blind and unresponsive, like a corpse, No matter what we say, it seems that it means nothing to them. But God, every believer here, we can remember a time when that was us. So we ask that having been merciful to so many, would you be merciful to more? We pray for the spread of the gospel across our nation at a time where we so desperately need truth. That lives and words that match you, that these would be seen and heard and you would make them effective. And God, we pray that you would do that throughout this tiny world 
as missionaries and Christians, churches, house churches, individuals, turn their face toward you. Meet them, God. Comfort. Put courage and strength into your people. Break the hearts and open the eyes of the unbeliever. Conquer them with your love. But God, in all of these things, may Christ receive all the reward of his suffering. Is our prayer in his name. Amen. Our reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Let's start in chapter 3. It's a short reading. We're going to read from verse 11 of chapter 3 down through verse 1 of chapter 4. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Well, we're looking at the theme of um, walking with the Lord, following Christ. So let's kind of back up just a little. When the Lord Jesus Christ calls us to embrace his claims, his rights, to follow him, it is a very personal response. That is... You must respond to God. And nobody can respond to God for you. And that response, of course, begins in the, in the embrace of those truths, in that mighty transaction in the soul that we call the new birth, and in conversion, God awakening, God stirring, God throwing open the prison doors of our heart, and it's like for the first time we can hear and see and, and love what he's been saying. And so we turn to him in repentance, turning our back on every other offer, and we believe what he says. But that's only the beginning. The opening of the prison doors then is followed by a life that's lived in that freedom or the opening of the gate of conversion is then followed by a path. And every Christian walks that path in, in the same way. We focus on a person. He's the great attraction. And we follow him with a very definite map. In fact, the same map he used, the scripture. And we don't walk it alone but we walk it with other individuals. So every Christian that you meet, every Christian that becomes part of your life, if you're a believer, then as a follower of Christ, every other follower of Christ that you have interaction with 
they too are called to follow Christ, to imitate Christ, to be discipled by Christ. And you have the opportunity to be a part of that. And they, to some degree, have an opportunity to be a part of your walk with the Lord. The corporate nature, the fact that Christianity is personal, but it's not only personal, can often get overlooked. I mean, one reason is that we are Americans and we are a fairly individualistic people. So it's just our, our ethos, you know, our culture. We are people that are born being fed individualism. And there are a lot of strengths and weaknesses that go with that. But it, it's not our national culture that guides the Christian. It's the scripture. Or we could say it's the culture of our everlasting kingdom, not the one that passes. One reason, I suppose, uh, another reason that it gets overlooked is that the personal aspect of following Jesus Christ is primary. It has to be first. You can't kind of plug into a group of followers of Christ and then by being involved with group events, somehow, you know, it, it works from the group down into you. To really follow the Lord it's primarily or it's first personal. But it doesn't stay there. It has to work itself out into the lives of other people. So it's not just about us. We're not allowed to be isolated. But another reason I think that it gets overlooked is that we have the problem of our English language. And in the English language, our little word, you. Well, we have you and just you and other languages have singular you and plural you. So we understand that here we have you and y'all, all right? But you and all of you. By far, the majority of references in the New Testament when commands or directions are given to the Christian, it is not an individual you that the Greek New Testament uses. It is the plural you. So when we read the New Testament letters, while it does apply to us personally, it has to also apply to us as a body of believers. You all do this. And there are some aspects of the Christian life that you cannot do merely as an individual. Think about sacrificial love. You cannot sacrificially love and follow Christ in that way. You can't imitate Christ like that if you are a self-isolating person. Now, we're not talking about personal temperament. Some of us are very gregarious, you know, and some of us are very um, isolating. We're shy. I used to always tell my parents that I was going to run away. You know, when I get mad, I said, that's it. I'm running away. You'll never see me again. I'd make it about five minutes and I'd come back. It wasn't because I was hungry or scared. It's because I, I got bored out there. I'm like, where is everybody? Like, well, there's nobody out here, John. You just ran away. Like, well... That's a bummer. I guess I'll go back. I tell Misty all the time, you know, when, when I get really old, I'm just going to go live on a mountain by myself. And she says, yeah, for like an hour, and then you'll go find someone to talk to. Some of us like being around a lot of people, and some of us are naturally shy. That cannot be the guide for our responses. Some of us give advice, unsolicited advice, freely. To the degree that our friends are a bit frustrated with this. 
And some of us wouldn't give advice, even if someone begged us to say, what do you think I should do? And, and because you're shy, you think, oh, I don't know, who am I to say? So it is easy to live by our temperament. It's easy to kind of live by how the, the kind of church that we grew up in as our pattern. But you cannot imitate Christ if that's what you do. To be followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to imitate him. We're going to have to follow his map. And we're going to have to do it together. So I want us to talk about that again. And I want us to look at, um, you know, at a passage that would be helpful. Now, sometime back when we began to talk about this, I did mention that there are dangers that arise when we put a lot of emphasis on church. I mean, one danger is that the personal response gets kind of lost. But in the last five years, I think everyone who's part of church life would notice that ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of God's gathered people, it's received the lion's share of emphasis. Almost every conference is on the church. And so there has been a lot of good done. There has been a lot of emphasis on how does God want us to approach him in worship. So the doctrine of the church includes that. And that's been very helpful. And there's been a lot of emphasis on how does God want us to learn the truths of scripture. So church education like catechisms and confessions. And those have been revived in many churches. And that is very helpful. But I warned you before and I want to say it again. That with every precious truth there is an enemy that would give us a little nudge and we go too far. And there is a, a, a sinfulness in our own heart, a kind of a self-centeredness that we have to guard. That even as Christians, we can take truths in scripture and we can, we can kind of warp them through the lens of ourselves, of our significance, our self-importance. And the doctrine of the church is one of them. And here's kind of how I've seen it happen. People are happy with church. Then they go to a conference on church and people come back and they're unhappy at church. And you think, what happened? And they tell you, well, before I went to the conference, I was so thankful for the gathering of believers that I was a part of. But now that I went to the conference, I found out all the things we're supposed to be doing. So we're not doing anything right. So now I'm disgruntled. I didn't know what a church was supposed to be doing, you know, especially the members. I didn't know how involved we were supposed to be in each other's lives. And now that I know, I know that I am entitled to more than I ever thought I was entitled to. And you guys are failing to give me what I'm entitled to. So I will find a church that will give it to me. Do you remember when Paul warns in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, that love, um, that knowledge, sorry, that knowledge puffs up. Love is humble. Knowledge puffs up. Now, the cure to our pride is not that we would be ignorant of what the scripture says. So let's think about what I just mentioned. Doctrine of the church. Well, we say, well, then let's not even, let's not study the church at all if it's just going to make us kind of self-centered and proud people. Well, that's not the cure. The cure is that as knowledge increases, love 
has to increase. Love for God. Love for each other. Otherwise, it does just produce pride. So person A and person B. Person A goes to the conference on ecclesiology. They come home, they read big books on the church. They, they understand better than they used to. So knowledge has grown. And it's good stuff they're learning. And their pride increases. I, I know how church should be. And they become entitled. Person B doesn't know as much as person A. But person B is happily increasing in service to other believers and thankful for what little, perhaps, other believers do in their life. What's the difference? Pride. It's not knowledge that's the difference. So that brings us to a passage where Paul talks about the increase of love. And it's part of growing in our faith. And it's part of his advice to a church that had a good start. And now Paul says, I'm praying that you will add to the good start. And I think it's a wonderful passage for us because 23 years later, after a start, and so many examples of God's kindness to us, it's certainly a passage that we can apply to us. Okay, the kindness of the Lord has distinguished 20 years, but this is not a place to slow down. So, what does Paul want us to do? Well, to press on to maturity. What does that look like? So, we're going to look at just a couple of passages here, a couple of verses from 1 Thessalonians. And this will be our last look in Thessalonians on Sunday morning. And then we're going to, I hope, look at a practical kind of guide or reference sheet. Uh, and you should have one at least that you can see. So, let me see where mine is. Here's mine. Do you have a little half sheet of paper that you can see? If you don't have one, you know, if the person next to you doesn't have it, doesn't have it, and you need one, raise your hand. But you've got to raise it really high because I won't be able to see it. Everybody got one within reach or sight? All right, we'll have extras at the door. So we'll look at that at the end. Okay, well, let's look at the passage. So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now, here's the context of Paul's prayer. We have a context, then we have these specific requests, and then we have the purpose of the request. Very simple. What's the context? Well, the prayer comes in verse 11 and 12. The context is verse 10. Paul mentions that they want to return again to Thessalonica. You remember that Paul left Thessalonica because of the... Um, because of the extreme persecution. And it would be easier on the Christians there if Paul were not there. So he shares the gospel. It's embraced by the people. As the people's lives change, the town gets angry. Jealous Jews rise up and the town persecutes the Christians. Paul goes on then to the next place. So Paul writes back and says, me and the fellow workers that are with me, we ask the Lord to let us come and see you again. Why? Because your faith, well, it's immature. There are things lacking in your faith. It's not, he's not pointing out terrible sins. It's just that we were only there a short while. And there's so much more that we would like to tell you so that you can really press on to maturity in Christ. So that's the background. He wants to help a church that got a good start. 
to really move forward. And then we have the requests, and then we have the reason for the request. So the request in verse 12, look at what Paul writes. In verse 11, he asked that God would let them visit the people again. But verse 12, if he's not allowed, whether Paul can come back again face to face or not, he prays that God would cause them to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. And Paul adds, just as we also do for you. So let's look at these simple requests. Paul prays that whether he can be there or not, that God would work in such a way that a church that's had a good start and does love would increase. And the word there, increase, is a Greek word. It's, it's stated in a way that you would very definitely increase. So not just that you would have the resolution to increase or that you would want to increase in love, but you would quite definitely increase in your love. And then the second word, abound. And that word is stated in such a way that gives the idea of an ongoing action. You would definitely increase in love and you would just continue to kind of overflow the edges of the present love that you have. Now, Paul gives two groups of people that he wants to see these Thessalonian Christians increase and abound in love for. One is the church, and the other is those outside the church. Now, the main focus in the passage is definitely the church, but let's take the lesser focus first. Paul says that he wants them to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, and that includes those who are not believers. Paul has to remind them that as they're growing in Christ-likeness, and as they're loving, it's not enough that they love each other. Though that is of, of immense significance to the church. That's primary. But they also, as they grow in Christ-likeness, they also need to be increasing and abounding, definitely growing in love for those that are not Christians. Paul gives himself as an example of this. Listen to what he writes at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 12. And this is a pretty common statement from Paul. I'll just give you this example. In 2 Corinthians 1, 12, Paul writes this. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So, Paul says, our conscience is clear. By the grace of God, we lived in a way that honored the Lord. We conducted ourselves in a holy manner in the way that we dealt with the world and especially in how we dealt with the believers. Two sides, not just one. The basic rule for how a growing, healthy church, I mean spiritually growing, the basic rule for how you are to relate to a culture that is rejecting the gospel, like the Thessalonian culture, which was rejecting the gospel. And there, this is certainly not a town that was friendly to the church, certainly not a town that was friendly to the claims of Christ, actively opposing. 
So Paul says, I want you, I'm asking God to work in you so that there would be a very definite increase and an ongoing, overflowing love and abounding love toward those who are lost, toward those who are blindly raging against God, toward those who are in the midst of self-destruction. How do you do that? Well, I think a couple of simple guidelines. One is that as we respond to the world around us in love, the clearest guide is Christ himself and his teaching. The character of God and the activity of God as we see it in Christ. We cannot respond to the world in a way that flows from how the world is personally offending us. We have to be increasing, not merely increasing in alarm, shock. How can people think that those choices are okay? Well, we are increasing in alarm, but that's not what Paul prays for. I pray that you would be more and more shocked at how wicked those Thessalonians are around you. We cannot increase in frustration. Those people out there are ruining our country. But we are commanded to increase in love. What does it look like? Well, I mean, we're to be salt and we're to be light. That's pretty clear. Christ commands that. So the way we live and the way we speak ought to be everywhere we go when we leave this building, we ought to be people whose lives expose the emptiness and ugliness of sin that shine a bright light on a path that leads to life in Christ and that our lives and words restrain sin in our workplace, on the soccer team, you know, in your neighborhood. But as we do that, we do it increasing in love for those that we are light and salt among, not increasing in frustration. And that is not natural for us. And for that, Paul has to pray, which means God will have to be involved because we don't increase that way normally. And it's a good prayer that we should pray. In Matthew 5, you remember the character of God being represented by his people in his kingdom. Let me read you a few verses. Verse 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Christ in that passage gives commands but the, the root guide there is, as you respond to those around you who are not Christians, make sure it reflects the character of your father. 
what good would it do if we could turn back some of the more, more heinous cultural sins of the last five years? If we could turn them back, if we could get our government to make laws against them, or maybe get our local businesses or our town to say, no, we don't want anything to do with that. What if we could accomplish the restraint of one ugly, heinous sin where we are, but in doing it, we did it in a way that misrepresented God? So we do away with this sin and we give a portrait to the people of God that is inaccurate. It's it's not the God of the Bible. It's an idol. So they become self-righteous and they quit doing this and they embrace the God that they saw in us, which is not him. Salt and light, yes. Increasing and abounding love as you're being salt and light. Another passage which gives our other guide, the character of God and the activity of God. So we want to be salt and light. We want to be a restraint on sin and a, and a light pointing to Christ in love because that is in harmony with how God is acting, not just who he is, the activity of God. So our activity ought to in some measure represent or mirror his. Listen to another passage that you're well aware of. Titus chapter 3, Paul says, be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ our Savior. So, again, simple rule, increase And abound in love, Paul says. You've had a good start. So love more. Who? The lost people around you. But they persecute or they oppose you, God. Yes. Love them. Increase in your love for them. That doesn't mean you don't expose what's wrong. It's not very loving to let a person, you know, drink poison in front of you. And you just say, well, if they want to be stupid, it's it's up to them. Love does do what salt and light would do. Love does expose the the danger and the ugliness of sin. But do it in a way that shows the Father's kindness, the common grace he shows, and the Father's activity. He poured out richly mercy on people who were his enemies. And you as a Christian, that you've experienced that so As you stand against what is wrong and point to what is right, let love be so obviously the motive that people can see that's the way your God dealt with you, mercifully. Well, that's a 
key point, but it's not the main point. So let's go to the other reason he prays or the other request. He prays that the Christians would increase and abound in love toward each other. And Paul doesn't have to say, I'm asking you to start loving each other now that you're Christians because they're already loving each other. He's saying to them, I'm praying that God would help you love each other more. Now, what are the reasons for this prayer? Well, the first reason is immediate, and then there's kind of the ultimate big goal of it. So two reasons, immediate reason, ultimate reason. The immediate reason, that your hearts would be established. What's he talking about in that verse? Verse 12, or sorry, verse 13, so that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. What is he talking about having the heart established? Well, I think the picture is this, that in the hearts of these believers, these Thessalonians, they do desire to wholeheartedly obey God. But good intentions can evaporate, especially when we think of uh, treating those outside of Christianity with kindness and truth and love, and then loving each other. If we are to really carry out the commands of the Bible, the one another commands, a couple of years back, Chuck walked us through those. If you are to really apply the one another commands, even within this one small church, you will need your hearts to be established or else it just will not happen. And we've all been there if we've been a Christian for very long. We have the good intentions. We say, I want to help other believers. I want to be a part of their life. I want to bear their burdens. I want to be forgiving and patient. Uh, I, I want, and then you try. And you try with a few people in the church. Maybe people that seem to you to be kind of, you know, on the edge or, and, and as you try, at first, things may go along pretty well, but then they disappoint you. Or maybe they misunderstand your motives from the very beginning and you lose that friendship and they start to avoid you and it becomes, you know, the southern polite smile and wave and chit chat and then zoom away from you as soon as they can. And you think, I can't help that person. And you throw up your hands. How will any Christian endure in a path of very intentional sacrificial obedience in the one another passages. How will we do his will in this church if your hearts are not established in love and fueled by love? Every other motivation, every other foundation, you will just be swept away. It's like the storm comes and whoosh, you you know, you're moved. The word established you know, it's, it's what we use the word for. There's no special meaning. It, to get rooted down. We plant a tree in the yard and, you know, you, you go online and you find out what the experts say about planting trees so you don't waste all your time and they talk about getting the roots established. And you want the tree not to just be green and grow. You want the, that ball of roots to spread through the earth So that when the winds and storms come, it's not just blown over. Christian, there will be plenty of wind and storm if you try to increase in your love for the non-Christian 
And if you increase in your love for the Christian. So what will keep you from just throwing up your hands and quitting? You will need your soul to set its roots deeply in love. Or think of a house being set upon a foundation of cement. You need to cement your heart's desires to do good, to obey Christ, to help others. Those those heart desires need to be cemented or established so that we, as a body, will live holy. And when Christ comes, we will not be ashamed. So, those two prayers and those reasons. In verse 1 of chapter 4, he starts a new section, but really he's talking about the same thing. Moving forward in obedience. But in verse 2 and following, he gives a a lot of specifics for them. I want us to stop just at verse 1. Because Paul says, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So, same basic picture. I'm praying that your hearts would abound, increase in love. I'm praying that that would establish you in a path of obedience or a life that chapter 4 describes, same life, different description, a walk that pleases God together. And you're already loving each other, and you're already showing love to the world, and you're already walking in a way that pleases God. But I'm praying that you will excel still more. Well, it's a pretty simple description of the Christian life. What we need and why. Let me say one last thing before we move to the next major point, And that is, there is the issue of the role of leadership. And so certainly that applies primarily to leadership in a church. But it also, you know, you can think of a family, a, a mom or a dad that's a believer an older believer in a relationship with a friend who's a younger believer, if we are to love and to help and to serve them, then there, there is a, an expectation of those that are leading in that situation. Look at the expression of Paul, and he talks about how they are leading out in these things. Chapter 3, verse 12. Do you see the last phrase? Just as we also do for you. So Paul says, I'm praying that God would cause you to increase and abound in love toward the world, toward each other, just as we also do for you. He does not say, because in Thessalonians, he often refers back to when we were with you. Remember how we lived when we were with you? When you followed our pattern... You followed the Lord Jesus Christ's pattern because we followed the Lord Jesus Christ's pattern. So you were following followers of Christ. And though you never saw Jesus in person, you're actually imitating him right now. Now, we talked a lot about that, but apply that here. I want you to increase and abound in love for the world, for the Christian. I want your life in its pleasing quality, in the day-to-day choices, the small things we do together, I want it to excel in its pleasing quality to God. Great, just 
as we also. Not, remember how we lived, but present tense, just as we also, right now, are increasing in love for you. And certainly we could put in verse 1, the New American Standard puts a word in there that might kind of shift the emphasis, the word instruction. So he says, we exhort you in Christ that, you, that as you receive from us, instruction is how you ought to walk. So excel in that. Well, instruction is a fine word to put in there. If you have a Bible that has that in italics, it means it's not in the original language, but it's been added by the translator to help you to understand the original language. So it's not a bad word, but it could lead you to think that he's only talking about the teaching. Do you remember when we were with you, we talked to you a lot about a life that pleases God. So go back and look at that sermon, look at the sermon notes on how to walk according to a pattern that pleases God. But Paul doesn't use the word instruction here. He just says, you received from us. And I think the ESV and the New King James, just they're, they're more accurate there. You received from us how to walk. So that includes... Not just the sermons and the sermon notes, but our lives. You watched us. If a Thessalonian wanted to know what love looked like and what pleasing God looked like, all they had to do is remember back to how Paul acted when under terrible persecution by religious and irreligious, he continued to give not only the gospel, but his own life to the people. So, leaders... When we pray that God would help the church increase in love and that we would walk and excel in pleasing the Lord, and when we think of some of the very specific passages for how the church is to act toward itself, how believers are to be a part of each other's lives, it always, always has to include the phrase, just as we. For Steve Crampton, Chuck, John Didier, John Snyder, for Ron Franks and A.C. Floyd, we have to be able to say, just as we. A leader can't be, an older Christian helping a younger Christian can't just be a road sign that points to something up ahead and says, now be careful, there's some danger up there, or there's a, you know, there, there's a fork in the road, or there's a stop ahead. You can't just be a road sign that tells the truth. You have to be a fellow traveler, a guide, who's a few steps in front, not behind telling people which way to turn and what to do, but ahead turning back saying, follow me, or just as we, just as I. And that, of course, is a great pattern for any parent, any Christian friend. So the leaders go in front. All right. Now, I want us to look at a practical guide, and that is where our little piece of paper comes in. So we don't normally do this in the worship service, but I want us to look at this. I don't know what to call it. I think we could call it a reference sheet for how we love within the body of Christ. It doesn't mean only the people in your church, but that's kind of like the family, so you start there. If we don't understand that the church is a family, if we don't see it as a body, then it becomes very optional when, when it becomes you and someone else in the church. 
I mean, I know we don't think it's optional theoretically, but it's optional for you to love an individual in the church when they're hard to love. And you think, well, I don't have to. But we're not just, we're not a group that people sign up for. And then you can unsign easily and just go find something else. Think of a family. Every family has people that are hard. Some, every family has crazy people. Every family has hard people. And sometimes you're the hard person in your family. Sometimes I'm the hard person in my family. But family, you can't just say, you know, I'm kind of tired of being friends with that, with my brother or my sister or my parent or my child. And so I'll just kind of ignore them the rest of my life and go on. It may not be easy, but family requires that you work so that it stays together. Think of a body. Maybe this is a clearer illustration. If any one part of a body is hurting, the entire body is in sympathy. I pulled a muscle last week. I don't know how I did it. And then I had someone who uh, said, I know what to do. I know what will help it. A, A chiropractor said this, and they did it. Well, of course, they weren't trained, so I think I'm a little worse now for that. And they offered to help again. I said, no, that's enough help. Okay, I have been eating ibuprofen like it's like it's Skittles. And I missed the prayer meeting this morning because I was laying on my back in the study all morning so that I could do this. I have one spot in my back that hurts and my whole body is complaining. But none of my body has come to my brain and said this, look, that back, that muscle, it's been a problem before. Let's just get rid of it. All right. Let's amputate it. Well, I can't. I can't exist without that part of me. So the whole body hurts and something has to be done. But you don't have the option of just saying, well, let's just get rid of that part. When you're part of the body of Christ and believers are difficult to love, you cannot just say, you know, they're kind of difficult to love. So I think we should just get rid of them. No, we cry out to the Lord and say, will you help our love to increase and to abound? Will you give us wisdom to know how to work that out into a pleasing life so that when Christ returns together, we are complete? Well, I gave you a sheet here and we'll print more if we need more. The pattern for love within the church and those little simple words we've already looked at, increase, abound, excel, still more. And the first two are passages that speak specifically to leaders and how they ought to serve the members and then the members, how they ought to respond to leaders. And there are, some of these have quotes under them. And so the dark print that's italicized, those are actually quotes from a little book by John Owen called uh, Rules for Walking in Fellowship. And he used a number of these categories. I didn't use everything Owen used. But what I want to do is I want to just look at a couple as examples and then we're finished. I think that this list could help us as a church if we think of it this way. I read a verse, so you know, you you look under um, the first one for all believers, general commands for all the church, love one another. All right, well, let's take Romans 12. If you have your Bible, open to Romans 12, verse 9. And so maybe that week, you just take that passage, Romans 12, 9 through 13, 9 through, yeah, 9 through 13. 
And you just take that passage, and at some time during the days of that week, you return to it and talk to the Lord about it, and you get a notebook and a pen, and the first thing we do is we ask God, God, how am I supposed to apply this in my life? And we don't change all at once, so I'm not saying... One day, Monday, do Romans, and then the next day, do John 13, and the next day, Ephesians 5, and the next day, 1 John 3. And then by the end of the week, you, you will love perfectly, just like Christ loved. Much better to go slowly and to stay with that verse, maybe just one passage for the whole week. And we look at it. Let's read it. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then he gets very specific. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So you're going to have to spend time with the Lord. There's nobody that can tell it to you. Nobody can do this for you and and spell it all out. How can you be devoted to the believers in the church in brotherly love? How can you increase in that? How could you excel in that? Go to the next thing. Give preference to one another in honor. How can you increase in that? What's, what practical ways? The next, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then he gets specific again. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Let me find my place. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. So that's a command. God, I do that, but how can I abound in that? And then finally, practicing hospitality. Well, you do that. How can you abound in that? That's pretty simple. If you just took that passage this week with the command of Paul, I I know that you love other believers. I'm just asking God to help you to increase and abound and excel. You say, well, good. I want to love Christians more, but vague, fuzzy resolutions are the enemy of real obedience. So we go to the scripture. Here are, here's a very simple list. You may be doing some of these very well. And so there may only be one or two that really jumps out at you. You may be doing them all poorly. So there may be only one or two that you need to work on right now. But meeting with the Lord Wrestling in prayer. God, how? Which one? And then do it. So that's the way we want to use the list. We want to use it to be made aware of the very specific ways of increasing in love and together excelling. Specific commands, directions. Second use of the list. Prayer. As you pray for other believers, think of the church prayer list. The believers on that prayer list, are you going to stay in the kind of grammar school level of prayer that says, well, Lord, uh, I just pray that you be with them. I mean, I don't even know these people or I don't know very much about them. What if you were to take the things that you're trying to apply in your life and after you're seeing some application in your life, you're able to pray God, help that person in one of these ways. It may not be the one you're looking at right now. And third, 
And this is a very definite order, in my opinion. If you skip the order, you're, I don't think you'll be much help. First, you do it. Then you plead with God for others. And as there are appropriate openings, and let love be the guide when you talk and how much you say, but to carefully, prayerfully look for opportunities. And if a believer comes to you and says, I'm really struggling here, and you think that I remember a passage that I've been trying to apply in my own life that would be really helpful to them, then speak and help the other believer to pick up the pace. Well, that was just one illustration. Maybe I'll give you, let me give you another one. Look at Ephesians 4. So this is a different category. It's from the category of, um, of maintaining the unity or peace, preserving unity. So, again, you, you take this passage maybe this week. It doesn't have to be the, all you do in your Bible, but write it down. Put it on your refrigerator. Think about it. Start in your home. Move it out to the church. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Okay, how am I going to do that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, Showing tolerance, which I think is not a great English word for that Greek word because it means something to us a little different. Uh, showing patience would be better. But they already use the word patience, so they, they go tolerance. Just don't think of it as I barely tolerate someone, all right? But enduring patience for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So do it. Meet with God. How can I, I already do that. How can I excel in promoting peace, real unity in Christ in our church? There's thousands of opportunities, every conversation. Okay, then I pray. And as I'm praying for the church prayer list throughout the month, maybe this passage is one that I would pray for those people. And then if God gives me opening and there's a real need for that, then I lovingly share that. Let me give you one more. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11, and then we'll jump to verse 14. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Just as you are also doing. Again, wonderful point there. You're already doing it, so just increase in putting courage into each other and building each other up. Verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonishing. Here's what his urging is. To admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone, even the unruly. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Very clear list. God, how can we excel in a life that pleases you? How do we walk together and follow Christ? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, 
14 and 15 will be part of that. So ask the Lord, meet with him one week, stay with the passage until you get some very clear, specific changes that need to be made in your life. Make them. Pray for others. Point them to the passage, but in that order. If you have not applied it, and if you have not paid the cost to really bring your brothers and sisters to the throne of grace, which is not a, a small cost to really pour your heart out for others, then really I think you have no right to shoot Bible verses at them and say, do this. That's what God says. Well, of course. But it doesn't help. It's not the way Paul did. Well, let's close with this question. How did they do? How did the Thessalonians do? I pray that you would increase and abound in love for each other and for the world and that you remember what the pattern and the truth that we gave you, that you would walk pleasing to the Lord, which you already do. I want you to excel in it. So how do they do? Second Thessalonians. The next time Paul writes, years later, he writes this. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. What a wonderful answer to our question. Well, how did they do with that? Well, their faith matured and their love grew greater in very specific ways. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.